this morning and we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, dear God, that you in Christ have forgiven all of our sins. That, Lord, you have removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. That, Lord, we now stand in your sight also with Christ's imputed righteousness to our account. We are indeed accepted in the Beloved. Father, we are in him and he is in us. And we just rejoice to gather here this morning and sing his praises and to sing to the glory of your name. We thank you for your goodness to us and in, in, uh, allowing us to gather in this place and freely proclaim your word. I ask that you would bring clarity to this text that we look at this morning, very controversial text. I pray, O oh God, that you would help us to see clearly what you have said in your word. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, for your blessed Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts and conforms us moment by moment, day by day, year by year, into the image of our Lord Jesus. Lord, we want to be like Jesus, and we pray, Father, that you would today strengthen our faith and encourage us, Lord, to continue on in following him with the great hope of his soon coming return. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. There is one new handout this morning. Looks like this without the yellow. And there's no page number on it. So this is just some notes from some commentaries that I put together. And I uh, wanted to point that out to you. So we've come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Really going to be covering verses 1 through 3 today in our study of 2 Thessalonians. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So here we have this section of text in 2 Thessalonians where Paul is dealing again with this eschatology, specifically here dealing with the second coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, which is also in Paul's mind, the resurrection of the dead in Christ. If you remember the verses from 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 16 and 17. And then uh, also here he's dealing with the revealing of the Antichrist and the apostasy that is yet to come. And so, of course, that opens up a whole big can of worms, doesn't it? Because those events are things that are spoken of all through the scripture. And this text here immediately brings us into the context of the whole Bible. And there are many uh, eschatological doctrines that are in view here. So I would like for you to consider, though, in this text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, what is the apostle saying? What is his point? What is he getting at? What, what, what is the thing he is communicating, which is our goal every time we come here on Sunday morning? We're trying to understand what God, through the apostle, has said by his Holy Spirit. Amen. And here, of course, these very controversial section of text and, and uh, to make it more complicated, there is some lengthy, there's a lengthy clause in the middle of what, what Paul is saying here that kind of distracts you from the main point of the text. And, um, and yet, I think that we can kind of dig through here and, and, uh, and see rather clearly what the apostle has said. So looking then at verses 1 through 3, 
Paul now goes on to further clarify matters of the second coming, the timing of the rapture, and also of the person of the Antichrist, his deceptive work and destruction. <coughs> this discussion is made up of the text of 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Okay, so this text, verses 1 through 3, is in the broader context of verses 1 through 12, which is a discussion about the Antichrist. And uh, if you will, there's a lot of data there, probably the most uh, comprehensive place in the New Testament where the Antichrist is discussed. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. But looking at verses 1 through 3, after having described the second coming in terms of Christ's retribution on believers, on unbelievers, and also the day of glorification of the saints, back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, he will now describe the timing of the rapture, the day of the Lord, and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Now I want to tell you that when I first became a Christian and started studying the Bible, I, got, I was very interested in eschatology. To top that off, the church I was going to uh, preached on eschatology regularly. And they would have, the pastor would preach on it, and there would be traveling speakers that would come through town and preach on it. One time, they, a guy came who uh, was a prophecy teacher from, I think, Roswell. His name was Ed Reimer. Dear, great brother. Fabulous mind. Uh, but he had a prophecy chart that went all the way around the inside of the, of the uh, auditorium in the church. I mean, this thing was like, I, I'm thinking it, the thing was 150 feet long. That he had made himself and hand-painted the whole thing and, and just, just a fabulous kind of a timeline of, of eschatology. And uh, so, uh, needless to say, at that time, of course, I was listening to... Um, Calvary Chapel pastors on the radio and I was listening to John MacArthur and J. Vernon McGee and all these guys that would come on the radio and I was just eating the Bible up and it wasn't long before I was a pre-trib premillennialist and um, I was very interested in these things and I was memorizing the texts of scripture that would uh, deal with these uh, issues and ideas and I was asking my pastors about it and I started asking questions and they started scratching their head because all the questions I was asking and so I started talking to people I knew outside of the church and trying to understand and, and um, it was this text that we're on this morning that finally uh, kind of went off in my brain that it's okay to believe the Bible instead of believing everybody that's teaching you. <laughs> so I don't say that disrespectfully. I do say that to tell you the great struggle that it was for me to try to wrestle with the text of Scripture and come to my own convictions about what the Scripture was saying, uh, even in the midst of a great cloud of witnesses that might be saying something different, left behind series of books included. So... Um, Needless to say, this is a very controversial text. I think this is the most definitive text outside of Jesus' Olivet Discourse in the New Testament that discusses the timing of the rapture, which really is the whole hot issue between pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, right? All of those arguments are contained within the uh, discussion about the timing of the rapture in regard to the tribulation. Is it before the tribulation? Is it during the tribulation? Is it after the tribulation? How does all that pan out? And um, so, if you will, um, I'm saying this is a definitive text on that issue. Certainly, in Paul's eschatology, it is the definitive text. In, um, in the New Testament, I would say that it's second. Uh, behind the Lord's Olivet Discourse, where he is just giving a very clear series of events that takes place, uh, which includes, in Jesus' teaching, the timing of the rapture. Uh, but going on here and looking at verses 1 through 3, um, he says, Now we request of you, brethren, his request is directed toward the phrase, that you be not quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed. So, when he says in verse 1, now we request of you, brethren, there's a comma. 
And when it, his request is directed at the phrase in verse 2, we request that you be not quickly shaken from your composure about some prophecy or report or letter to have come from us. So he's saying to them, don't be so worried about this thing that you're falling apart. Okay? Don't be shaken from your composure. Okay? Because he's saying, basically, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to straighten you out on these issues. So... Uh, this is uh, his discussion. We request that you be not so quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed. Verse 2. He is comforting them by correcting an obvious misunderstanding that they have. They were under the impression that the day of the Lord has come. It is assumed that someone had written a false letter or at least had given a message of some sort that was a counterfeit message from the apostles explaining that they were now in the day of the Lord. This is obvious from the statement, or be disturbed by either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They obviously thought that their severe persecution was a result of the terrible events Paul had described to them as the day of the Lord. So, you know, they're under this terrible persecution, intense suffering. And, and they're thinking, you know, you know, we're waiting for the Lord to come and deliver us because we know when the Lord comes again, we're going to be delivered. But how could we possibly be in this, this severe persecution? And uh, to top that off, obviously, Satan had sent some messenger, right, with a false message trying to say the day of the Lord has already come. You guys are in it. This was their misunderstanding. Is that pretty clear? Yeah. I think it is rather clear. Here Paul writes to correct them and tell them that the day of the Lord has not come and that it won't come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Verse 3. So Paul clearly corrects them and in so doing also addresses some matters of the second coming including the timing of the rapture, the great end time apostasy and also of the revelation of the person of the Antichrist. Now with that I want to read to you what Paul wrote about the parousia back in, in uh, the first Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to remind you what's going on in the mind of the apostle when he talks about the coming of the Lord or the parousia, okay? The second coming. As Paul's going through first Thessalonians, he keeps bringing up this issue that they're waiting for his son from heaven, that, we're, that, uh, that the Lord is, is uh, coming with all of his saints, chapter 3, verse 13, right? And then at that time, they are going to be Paul's joy and his crown, chapter 2, verse 19, right? And then when he gets to chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, he, he gives a vivid description of what this parousia is like. And there we see that the dead in Christ rise, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven, the dead in Christ shall rise first, Right? We who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them in the air with the Lord. So shall we be with the Lord forever. Paul goes on in the first part of chapter 5 and he describes that as the day of the Lord. And he says, when all the people in the world are thinking it's peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. But uh, like a thief in the night, he says. But he says, that day will not overtake you like a thief. Why? Because you are children of the day. You're aware of the times and the seasons. You know what's coming on the world as you see these things unfold before you. I want to read this text to you. Remember, there's several elements here. Number one, the Thessalonians are going to be reunited to their loved ones who have died, their Christian loved ones who have died. This is in Paul's uh, view. And then he goes on describing the actual second coming of Christ the dead in Christ being resurrected, the church being raptured. He goes on to call those things the day of the Lord. And then he, he uh, kind of closes up there in chapter 5, starting in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And of course that word coming there is the word parousia. Now Paul goes on to give a vivid description of that parousia. 
He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for the obtaining, uh, for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. Amen? Amen. So there was Paul's description, if you will, of the parousia. In Paul's mind, when he thinks about the parousia, here's what he sees. He sees the Lord descending from heaven, the dead in Christ rising first, the living church being raptured, and then sudden destruction coming upon the unbelieving world. And so, if you will, as we've said all along through our study of First and Second Thessalonians, that day is going to be a day of tremendous rejoicing and deliverance for the church. But for the unbelieving world, it's going to be a day of retribution, a day of wrath, as Paul describes so clearly in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Remember that. Okay, back on our notes here, page 85. In Paul's mind, the coming of the Lord Jesus is an event which inaugurates the unfolding of a sequence of several events spoken of in Scripture. The events include the gathering together with him we call the rapture, spoken of by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17, and also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it's right here on the board. Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering to him. Okay? That's a reference there to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17, the rapture of the church. This is when the church is gathered to him to meet the Lord in the air, reunited with the dead in Christ, so shall we be with the Lord forever. This second coming involves all of these events, which include also the day of the Lord spoken of by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.3 and 2 Thessalonians 2.2. Also, the retribution of Christ upon the unbelievers and the Antichrist spoken of by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9 through 9, and 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Additionally, Paul had instructed the Thessalonians to wait for and expect this event as the great day of their deliverance and joy together with Paul and all the saints in those texts that we have listed there. And then also their reuniting with their loved ones. This is what Paul was telling them to expect when Jesus returned, right? That they would be delivered. It would be a joyful time when they would be reunited to their loved ones who had fallen asleep, he said. And also, it would be the time when uh, their persecutors would be destroyed, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3, and 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 10. So, <clears throat> if you will, um, all of these events happen at the second coming of Christ, okay? And uh, so think about what Paul is saying here in our text this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, 
We request of you, brethren, now remember what that's pointing to? That you be not quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed, right? By some prophecy report or letter, okay? With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the parousia, and our gathering to him. Now think about what Paul is saying, okay? There's two events, it seems like, that are spoken of here, right? But there's one article. In other words, Paul's saying with regard to these two things, Okay, you with me so far? All right. Look um, then at the bottom of 85. All of these things are one and the same event. Here's my point. My point is, is that this text is clearly saying that these two things are one and the same event. Okay? And I'm going to show you that the commentators agree with me on that. Even the pre-tribulational premillennial commentators agree with me on that. Okay? <laughs> Um, all of these things are one and the same event, if you will, in Paul's mind when speaking of the coming parousia of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul's thinking about the parousia, what is he thinking? Well, it's all these events. It's the day of their deliverance. It's the day of the destruction of their persecutors. It's the day when they'll be reunited with their loved ones. It's the day when the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a loud trumpet call, with the voice of the archangel. It's the day when the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. All of those things are in Paul's mind when he thinks about the parousia. Not to mention that that is, in his mind, the inauguration of the day of the Lord. That is the day of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns in blazing fire with his mighty angels. Amen? So we could say with Paul, when Jesus comes, he will destroy his enemies. Or he will rapture the church. Or we will be reunited with our loved ones who have died. Or it will be a day of great joy together with all the saints, etc., etc., etc. You could say that of, of, and many more things. When Jesus comes, he's going to destroy the Antichrist. When Jesus comes, he's going to throw the false prophet in the lake of fire. When Jesus comes, he's going to bind Satan for a thousand years. When Jesus comes, he's going to establish a millennial kingdom on the earth with his throne in Jerusalem. And he's going to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. Right? We could say all those things about when Jesus comes. So what I'm trying to tell you is, is that this idea of the parousia encompasses many events. The commentators refer to it as a complex of events, okay? So we can't just think about it as one single thing, although it is one single thing, okay? And so in Paul's mind here, even though he mentions two aspects of it, it is one thing, but could include many others if he were to just go on. So then, these things are one event. In fact... There are several places in the text where Paul equates these events as being one in the same. Paul had equated these two events, the day of the Lord and the rapture, back in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 through 5.3. And he does it again in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 3. Let's see here. Am I getting ahead of myself? I am. I'm getting ahead of myself. So I was talking about the fact that these two things are the same event. With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus, the parousia, and our gathering to him. Okay? Because see, the verse in, in, chat, in verse 2, that's a clause. That's not dealing with this. That clause is dealing with, now we request of you, brethren. Then in verse 3, he comes back and he makes comments about this. Right here. Okay? You'll see what I'm saying shortly here. But I, I wanted to... Um, to speak to you about the fact that when you're reading in the commentators on these verses, specifically on verse 1, they're all saying this is the same thing Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, which is what? What is that? The rapture. That's when, that's when Paul says the Lord will descend from heaven, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we will be caught up, we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. When you read the commentators, they all say of this verse 1 that this gathering to him is referring to 
that, that um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, and that this coming of the Lord is the same thing. How do we know that? Because all through 1 Thessalonians, when Paul talks about the parousia, he describes it in chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 as our gathering to him. Okay? In Paul's mind, that's the parousia. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, this is what he's saying with regard to the parousia and our gathering to him. He's making reference to what he taught them about back in the first letter. So if you will, you can see how I've got these notes. Got these notes? Pull those notes out. These are notes from some commentators. Okay, And here's what I'm trying to say. They're, they're saying that this verse, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, is speaking about the rapture. So if, if you will, Calvin is immediately saying that concerning the coming, uh, it suits a better view. It is as earnest entreaty taken from the subject in hand, just as in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, which is talking about what? The resurrection, right? When discoursing as to the hope of a resurrection. So what does Calvin have in mind? That when Paul brings up the coming of the Lord and our gathering to him, he's talking about a resurrection. What resurrection? The resurrection of the dead in Christ, who are going to be risen up first, and we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So Calvin's saying, this is talking about the resurrection, the same thing, if you will, that, that Paul brought up back in 1 Thessalonians 4. He goes on and says there, about the middle of the page, as you set a high value on the coming of Christ, when he will gather us to himself and will truly perfect that unity of body which we cherish as yet only in part through means of faith. Here's what he's saying. This gathering together is when we're going to meet the Lord. This gathering together that's spoken of here and this coming and this gathering together that's spoken of here in verse 1 is when we are going to meet the Lord at the resurrection. John MacArthur comments on this. The struggle came as Paul indicates once again, and he refers to what? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 5, 11. Because they were confused with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and believers gathering to him. Though Paul used two expressions, look here, coming of the Lord and gathering to him. That's what MacArthur says. Though Paul used two expressions, he actually had one event in mind, not two. The Greek syntax uses only one article with two nouns, making it clear that two complementary elements of one event are in view. You see what I'm saying? What I'm saying is these two things refer to the same article. What? The parousia, the coming of the Lord. Okay, now think about that. Let that sink in. Do you know how many times I've been trying to tell you that the second coming and the rapture are the same event? Here they are in the text of Paul's verse. And he's saying with regard to these things, okay, there's one article here in the Greek syntax. So even though he describes two elements of it, it's one event. And when he gets later on in verse 3, he's going to comment back on that one event as to when it's going to happen. That's why this text is definitive about the timing of the rapture. Why? Because the rapture's in view right here. Right? Even though we know that the parousia is the rapture from 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, here he calls it specifically our gathering to him. Okay? This word here in the Greek is episynagoge. Right? You know what that means? That's like where we get our word synagogue. Synagogue is a what? An assembly, a gathering. Okay? And, and so, if you will, this is our gathering together to him. MacArthur goes on. He's talking about verse 1 here. This is the sixth mention in these two letters of Christ's coming. Of the many aspects of the parousia coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul focused specifically on the first event, the gathering together of believers to him in the rapture. And then he refers to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. So do you see what I'm saying? That in the commentators' minds, when Paul uses these phrases right here, he's referring back to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Are you with me? Okay. (laughs) 
MacArthur goes on, he zeroed in on that event because, as noted earlier, the confused Thessalonians expecting relief instead were suffering severe persecution. That caused them to believe that they had missed the rapture and were in the day of the Lord. Okay, now we all know that's clear from the text, right? They're confused about that. Paul's writing to straighten them out. When he writes to straighten them out, he's talking to them about timing. How do we know that? Because they're thinking they missed it. They're thinking the timing is off. What's going on here? This is why I'm telling you that this is a definitive text concerning the timing of the rapture. Okay, you with me? Okay, a couple more commentators. Matthew Poole, he says, And by our gathering together unto him at his last coming, he describes that, when the whole body of Christ shall be gathered to him to meet him in the air. And where does he reference? 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Or in the Zondervan pictorial commentary, our being gathered to him. Here's what they say. The immediate reference is to the comforting picture given in the previous letter of how all believers, both those who have already died and those who are still alive, will be gathered together to Jesus at his return. And what do they reference? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. So here's my point, if I haven't made it clear already. This set of phrases right here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, is referring to the rapture, the resurrection of the dead in Christ, which happens at the parousia. That's my point. Now I'm going to move on, okay? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I provided two charts on page 86 that are just kind of like a chart analyzing the text in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, okay? And if, if you're looking at those, this is what they look like. Let's see, the top one is this one. Okay, and uh, basically what it's showing is, is that this text is saying that those two things are the same event, which I just gave you uh, another cloud of witnesses there who all are agreeing with me that these are the same event. The parousia is the gathering to him, and that's crystal clear in Paul's mind. When he thinks parousia, he thinks 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. So when he's talking about the coming of the Lord, he's saying that is our gathering to him. I call it the rapture. Okay? I call it the rapture. It doesn't just mean, although the word is itself is describing the catching away of the saints, the, the Latin word rapturos, which is uh, uh, the words caught up in our English Bible in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, or is it 17? But the, I call it the rapture. But in my mind, that includes what? The whole first resurrection, <laughs> which is the dead in Christ who rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But that is what happens at the second coming. That's my point. That is what the parousia is. Okay? And uh, so we'll go on. So I would like for you to please, if you haven't already, Look at those two charts that I provided on page 86. I'm not going to explain them in detail here. But I just want you to see how when you analyze this text, the things that are very clear from this text. Okay? Also wanted to point this out to you. This little chart here is on the bottom of that comments handout I gave you. Okay, now... Remember I was telling you that these two things are the same event? Okay. I want to tell you what the commentators say about that. Look on the back side of that page with the notes. Here's what they're saying about that being the same event. Uh, David Williams is a new uh, international version commentary series. He says, the two nouns uh, coming and being gathered are governed by the one article and are thus <laughs> depicted as the one complex event. Uh, the gathering is that spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. 
Therefore, those who use this verse to make a distinction of the time of the so-called rapture of the saints and the parousia do so in defiance of the syntax. A single event comprises the return of Jesus, visible in glory, and the rapture of the saints. Then also, G.K. Beale comments of these verses, that both Christ's coming and the saints' resurrection are in mind is evident in the wording of 1.1, the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him. These phrases allude to Christ's coming to gather his saints at the final resurrection. The common wording and theme show that this section is a further unpacking of 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 17, and that false teaching is over-realized distortion of that part of Paul's first letter. He's saying that what the false teachers were telling him was a misrepresentation. Instead, that what is in, in view here is that Christ's coming and the saints' resurrection um, is one article. Uh, Leon Morris comments of this. He says, coming and being gathered are combined under one article. The two are closely connected and parts of one great whole. And then he references 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. William Burkett writes on this. He says, the apostle calls the coming of Christ a gathering together unto him. You realize how profound of a statement that is? Think about what's being said here. He comments, the apostle calls the coming of Christ a gathering together unto him. Intimating that when Christ shall come, all the saints shall be gathered together unto him. At the day of judgment, there shall be both a congregation and a segregation. Right? There's going to be a joyful gathering of the saints and a segregation of the wicked. Right? A congregation of all believers to make up the number of Christ's train and attendance, and that in one troop they may be brought unto his heavenly kingdom. You know, so what's in view here is that these two things are the same event. All of these commenters are saying that on this whole page. And there's more. The more I dug up, they're all saying the same thing. Okay? So, uh, moving on from there. Number five. Okay, now, follow me here. I made this point, right? That the parousia, or the coming of Christ, is the same thing as our gathering together to him. What's in view is what happened back in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, or, if you will, the rapture. So, the second coming and the rapture are the same event. That's my point. That's what I'm saying this text says. That's Paul's point. And that's what all these commentators are trying to say about this thing, okay? Uh, even though I don't want to misrepresent, some of these commentators are pre-tribbers. Even though they say what they've said here, for example, MacArthur, right? He's a pre-tribber. He goes on to say that even though he made those comments, that the church is going to be raptured before the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, later on in his, uh, in his discussion. So I don't want to misrepresent what he's saying, okay? Several of these guys are amillennialists. So they don't even believe there's going to be a coming millennial kingdom, okay? Yet when they read this text, it's very clear that these two things are the same event. Are you with me? So my point is, if these two things are the same event, think about the ramifications of that in light of verse 3. Because look what Paul says. Follow me now. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, right? I'm going to skip that big long clause. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, do you understand the ramifications there? Mm -hmm. That if these two things are the same event, okay, that the coming of the Lord Jesus and the rapture are the same event. Paul is saying that won't happen until what happens? The great apostasy and the Antichrist is revealed. You with me? Okay. 
So going on from there, I'm at the bottom of page 86. This brings with it a very specific understanding then in regard to the timing of the rapture. Because Paul then describes with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him that this will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. If you will, Paul is explaining that the rapture then, our being gathered to him, is an event which takes place after the Antichrist is revealed. Because we know from the text of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 31, and Daniel's chapter 7 through 12, and also Revelation chapter 13, that the great tribulation period is those events which surround the coming of the Antichrist to power and the destruction done by him. Therefore, the rapture is a post-tribulation event. This is very clear from an understanding of these texts. Further, all the events which make up the second coming are summed up here by Paul as the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, and also the day of the Lord, are spoken of as post-tribulation events. These things, says Paul, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. John Piper comments on this in his morning sermon, 83087. I gave you a link there. You can go listen to that sermon where he's teaching on this text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And he's uh, describing what's going on there. But he comments there, if Paul were a pre-tribulationist, why did he not simply say in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 that the Christians don't need to worry that the day of the Lord is here because all the Christians are still here? Instead, he talks just the way that you would expect a post-tribulational person to do. He tells them that they should not think that the day of the Lord is here because the apostasy and the man of lawlessness have not appeared. Okay, so he, here's what he's saying. He's saying if, if, if Paul was a pre-tribber, he would just say this. Um, you don't have to worry about the day of the Lord already being here because you're still here. And he would have said something like this. Don't you remember that I told you that you would be raptured off this earth uh, before those events began to take place? Right? He would be reasoning in a whole different way. I would like to add at this point that Paul could have said many pre-tribulational things. Um, <clears throat> that make pre-trib doctrine very clear. An example would be, in 1 Thessalonians 5.4, Paul could have simply said, that day will not overtake you as a thief because you will have been caught up seven years earlier. Or he could have said in reference to the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and 17, that this happens before the man of lawlessness is revealed. He could have said something like that. Or, seven years before the second coming of Christ. He could have said, this rapture happens seven years before the second coming. But Paul doesn't do that. Every time Paul describes the second coming, he's tying the rapture to it. That's what I'm trying to say. Makes these texts so clearly, definitively post-tribulational. Because of verse 3 in, in our text today. Verse 3 is saying those things aren't going to happen until the man of lawlessness is revealed. Okay, having said those things, I want to play a little excerpt from John Piper's sermon because I think he explains those things ten times better than I ever could try to. Okay? And we have just a few minutes here. This is about a six-minute deal. So tell me if y'all can all hear this. I'm going to list for you tonight the things that we do agree on if you're a pre-tribulationist, and I'm not, because they are magnificent vastly more important than the difference in timing that we're going to be talking about tonight. And there is absolutely no warrant for evangelicals to split fellowship over this issue. And I have the highest regard and respect for godly people who do not agree with me on this issue. And I hope that helps you cope emotionally with what I'm about to say. I am a, what's called, post-tribulationist. I'll try to explain these terms tonight because I know many of you 
this is all just jargon. It doesn't mean anything. One young woman came up afterwards and she said, look, I grew up in the Catholic Church and I don't know what millennium means. I don't know what tribulation means. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I'll try to just start from ground zero tonight with definitions and drawings and see what we can do. But in a word, my anticipation is that one great and glorious event is on the way. Christ is going to come. We will rise to meet him in the air, usher him in. He will establish his kingdom, grant rest to his people, vengeance upon the unbelievers, establish his millennial kingdom, and reign upon the earth in glory. Now, that's a glorious expectation. But I don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that takes the church out of the world seven years before that. Now, why? Well, there are many reasons, and I don't have time to tell you all of them, but here we are in 2 Thessalonians 1, I mean 2. And so I will show you why this chapter has stood up like a great roadblock in the way of my embracing the view of pre-tribulationism. The Thessalonians are shaken and alarmed. They think that the day of the Lord is here. It's virtually at hand. Now... Pre-tribulationists all believe that the day of the Lord, that phrase refers to the second half of the second coming, in glory and power. It's described in verse 8. They would say, and I would say. And then the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by his appearing and his coming. Everybody agrees that's the final decisive descent of the Lord in power, fire, and vengeance, and glory. So the day of the Lord is not the rapture, according to pre-tribulationists. It's not that quiet event by which the church is snatched out of the world. Now the question then that rises in my mind is, if the Thessalonians were overly excited and shaken, thinking that the day of the Lord had come, why didn't Paul just say, verse 3, it can't have come, I'm still here, and you're still here. He said, what, what he says is, you, you know, the day of the Lord has not come because the apostasy has not come, and the man of lawlessness has not been Reveal. Now let's think about this man of lawlessness from the standpoint of pre-tribulationism for a moment. All pre-tribulationists agree that the man of lawlessness will be revealed after the rapture. And they believe that rightly on their terms from verses 6 and 7. Because something is restraining the man of lawlessness. You see that? There is a restrainer. If you ask a pre-tribulationist, what's the restrainer? What is keeping back the man of lawlessness so that he can't appear? They all answer the same thing. And it's a good answer, probably. The Holy Spirit in the church. So that when the church is taken out of the way, the man of lawlessness is revealed. All restraint is gone. That's standard, universal, pre-tribulation teaching. No surprise to anybody. The church, raptured out of the world, the Holy Spirit, in that sense, gone, releases the man of lawlessness to appear. In other words, the church will not be here, according to pre-tribulational teaching, when the man of lawlessness appears. The, the Thessalonian Christians will not see the appearance of the lawless one. Now, why then? would Paul try to convince them that the day of the Lord has not come by pointing to the appearance of one that they'll never see in his appearance. They'll see him slain at the end when they return on pre-tribulational grounds. But they'll be gone when he appears. Why then does Paul choose to support his contention that the day of the Lord isn't here by saying, you don't see the man of lawlessness, do you? Why does he answer with the exact way a post-tribulationist would answer? 
Namely, you can know the day of the Lord isn't here because two prerequisites of his coming have not appeared for you to see and assess the apostasy and the appearing of the man of lawlessness. You haven't seen him, therefore the day of the Lord is not here. That's the way a post-tribulationist talks, not the way a pre-tribulationist talks. And then Paul goes on in verses 4 through 9, and he describes in some detail the appearing of the man of lawlessness. And the point of this passage, I think, is not that Christians are going to be going to heaven when this man appears, but that they're supposed to recognize him when he comes. That's, that's just the plain, ordinary sense of this chapter when you read it through. So my own conviction this morning is that I would dishonor the word of God and I would do you a great disservice, even those of you who disagree with me, if I did not lay out for you from this chapter as much as I can a description of the man of lawlessness so that should he appear in our generation, which is entirely possible, you will know it and recognize him and not be swept away in the apostasy which he will bring to a climax. Well, he said that far better than I could. The other thing is, I, I get real uncomfortable about <clears throat> uh, speaking about other people's system of interpretation uh, that I highly respect. <laughs> and so I'm going to let him do that rather than, <laughs> rather than me do that. However, even though I obviously have the same conviction about this text, I, I believe I would dishonor the word of God if I didn't tell you what I think this text is saying, which to me, I'm, I'm going to great lengths to do that because I realize the pre-trib system of eschatology that's in people's minds. I know. I went through it. I learned it. I defended it for years. But I, it, it came to clash in my mind when I finally saw the whole picture and I knew exactly what these scripture passages were saying and I had dug in and considered them uh, to such a point that I could no longer continue to hold those convictions, especially with texts like this, which to me make it so clear that Christ is coming to rapture the church after the tribulation. So that opens up a whole can of worms, right? So are you saying the church is going to go through the tribulation? Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. However, I just want to make this point before we end. In my mind, that's not the same thing as the wrath of God. Because we're not appointed under wrath, but we're appointed unto salvation. So I am not saying that the church is going to endure the wrath of God. Let me just explain that with this little chart. That's also on the bottom of those notes that you got. Right here. So what's happening is we're going through time and the Antichrist rises to power. And in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, he commits the abomination of desolation. That is the point in my mind, my understanding, when he's revealed. Okay, because he's no longer Mr. Nice Guy. Now he is this venomous, vicious snake who seeks to destroy and it says in Daniel 8, he will cause astounding devastation. And it says in Revelation that, that God gives him power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And uh, it, it, there, are, there are just some devastating things we're going to learn in the coming verses about this man and what he does. But nevertheless, in my mind and in my understanding of Scripture... That is the events of the tribulation. The tribulation is, in G when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, right? Let him who's in his house not go down on the roof, go down to get his coat, let him flee to the mountains. Man, it better not be a Sabbath, right? He's, he's saying all of these things, important things. But then he goes on and says, for at that time there will be a time of tribulation such as not happened, from the beginning of nations until that time, nor shall there ever be. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short, right? And uh, if you will, Jesus is describing that tribulation as the rise of the Antichrist to power and the abomination of desolation, which is what Revelation 13 is describing.
It is the Antichrist system of the mark of the beast that he implements in the whole world, which is an economic and religious system by which the whole world will worship the beast. How do they do that? They do that by worshiping an idolatrous image of himself that he sets up and demands the worship of the world and exalts himself above every so-called God, as Paul writes in our next verse. Right? And so not only can you not buy, sell, or trade without taking the mark on your right hand or on your forehead, right? But if you don't worship this image in this beast, it says in the text, he'll cause all who do not do that to be killed. Okay? This is a tremendous time in, in world history. Un, uh, unbelievable time. Jesus says of that time, there is no days like it. Right? And, but, he says, those days will be cut short. And in verse 29 of Matthew 24, here's what he says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sign of the Son of Man, I'm sorry, the, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sun won't shine, the moon won't shine, the stars will fall from the sky, right? And he says in verse 30, At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory, with all of his angels. And he will, he will send forth his angels, and they will gather together his elect from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Okay? The rapture. That's how I read it. And that's, in my mind, the most definitive text in the New Testament about these things. So, the tribulation is going along. It gets cut short by the second coming of Christ when he raptures the church. And the day of the Lord then gets inaugurated. And that's when God pours out his wrath and his retribution on the unbelieving world. And that's why the church never suffers the wrath of God. They do, in fact, suffer. They, they suffer through the tribulation period in a time of great persecution. However, I believe that that will not be a time when most Christians will die. I think many Christians will die. Uh, and I have reasons for that belief. But, but my point is just that we're going to be here and it's going to be a terrible time. And if I don't tell you that, I'm violating my conscience. Okay? And, and one of the main reasons why is because of this text we're studying this morning. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and take your question, and, and then i gotta, I got to end. What was your starting point of the tribulation again? Starting point of the tribulation. Okay, I kind of have a, a different view on that. In other words, most people will tell you that, I'll try to answer this real quick and real simple. Most teachers will say, that it's either seven years, which is the 70th week of Daniel, which I do agree there is a 70th week of Daniel, which is for God's people Israel. Okay, I'm not dismissing that. But then there, it's split in half. There's three and a half years here and there's three and a half years here. Okay, Most Bible teachers will say that this whole seven years is the tribulation. But they will say of the last three and a half that this is the great tribulation. So when they talk about the tribulation, they're normally referring to this whole seven-year period. But when they talk about the great tribulation, they're referring to this three-and-a-half-year period of intense suffering when Antichrist has his rise to power. Now, the midpoint of this, we know from Daniel 9.27, is right here, the abomination of desolation, which is what Jesus brings up in Matthew 24.15. Okay, so um, my view of this is, is that the Bible doesn't exactly tell us when this great tribulation starts and ends. Okay, most people just say, well, it's got to be the second three and a half years because this ends at the second coming of Christ. And, and we know that it begins at the abomination of desolation. I think that conviction is fine. I don't really have any reason to cast that down. But my point is, the text of Scripture does not say that anywhere. The text of Scripture never says the Great Tribulation is 3.5 years long. It never says the Great Tribulation is seven years long. It doesn't say anything about the length of it. Jesus just says, when you see this abomination of desolation happen, there will be a time of tribulation such as unequaled from the beginning of nations until that time. That's all he says about it. 
He doesn't say when it starts. So if you will, I'm okay with saying it's the last three and a half years, okay? But I'm, I'm wrestling with that. To me, it's, uh, it's something that's not necessarily that important. How long is this time of tribulation? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's three and a half years. I know this for sure. It's going to be cut short by the second coming of Christ. And it's going to be cut short in a, in a decisive, cataclysmic way where the sky is going to roll up like a scroll and the Son of Man is going to appear in glory in blazing fire with his mighty angels. And it's at that time that that wicked Antichrist is going to get destroyed forever. But we're going to see it. Well, in my view, it's very clear that we are going to see all those things. And uh, I'm going to try finishing making that point when we look at Matthew 24 next week, if the Lord is willing. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for your kindness and your love to us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity on these matters. Father, as we look at this text in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3, help us to know what you have written there. Help us to see clearly what you have said to us not to be deceived about. And Lord, I just pray that uh, if uh, there be disagreement, Father, that uh, uh, my dear brothers and sisters would know that these are my convictions and I, I hold their position in highest regard, that Lord, as premillennialists, we have so much in common. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see um, uh, the enormity and the massive ramifications of the soon coming return of our Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, may we live like holy people who serve you and love you. May we be your priests and may we preach the gospel to those who so desperately need to be saved, oh God. I pray that you would show us opportunities, Lord, and that you would empower us by your spirit to speak the gospel boldly. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. amen.